really would be a privilege, Father, if your Spirit was to settle upon us this evening and grant us understanding. Once again, we remind ourselves that your Word is inspired and we remind ourselves that the same Holy Spirit that brought glory to Christ in all his ascendant glory to the, to the disciples. We pray that that same Holy Spirit would reveal to us the truth of your word from Exodus chapter 3. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wasn't quite sure. It's, it's, it's 20 past 7, so I think, you know, if I don't preach too long, I'll say at the end if there are any questions at the end. I don't know whether, does Christoph allow you to do that? Does he? Does he? Sometimes, you know, I've seen it being done. So if you have any questions, please, you know, just put your hand up at the air, in the air at the end uh, as we look at the divine name in Exodus chapter 3. Because uh, as hopefully we'll discover, it's, um, it's a portion of Scripture which has, um, well, very deep, deep uh, mysteries about it. Now, just by way of introduction, uh, I don't know if you're a great fan of films. Um, I am. I like, I like a good film. And I have one particular hero um, who usually at the start of his film uh, dives out of a plane, you know, skydives for thousands of uh, feet through the air, parachute pops open, he lands in enemy territory, tackles the fear of the enemy, peels off the parachute, well, he peels off the parachute first, then he tackles the enemy, uh, gets himself in bother usually, then he gets himself out of bother, uh, gets back to his office in London, receives instructions uh, from his boss, and then he he, he usually dines in some exclusive gentleman's club, gets introduced to somebody, and he says, my name's Bond, James Bond. I used to do a really good Sean Connery impression, but I'll not do it tonight because it's not as good as it used to be. But I, I, used to, I, I love watching James Bond because, you know, whenever he says that, I think that's it. You know, that's why I love this film, because he says the name's Bond, James Bond. It's, it's one of those things that you really look forward to. And the really funny thing is about Exodus chapter 3, is that that is almost what Exodus chapter 3 is all about. God says, the name's Yahweh, I am who I am. And we're going to look at this tonight, what this word Yahweh means, and what the names of God mean. Excuse me a wee second. Because there are many names uh, for God in the Bible, Yahweh is the most common in the Old Testament, um, another name you could have in the Hebrew is El Shaddai, which means Lord Almighty. Uh, Elohim, which means God. Or Adonai, which means Lord or Master and can be used in different contexts. Uh, some other people use a name called, uh, use a name by the term Jehovah. Uh, great Christian hymn writers from uh, Charles Wesley through to Robin Mark have uh, used Jehovah in uh, their song lyrics and, and their prose and their poetry about the Lord. Uh, unfortunately, the word Jehovah doesn't exist in the Bible. It's a cross between uh, Adonai and Yahweh, and uh, the cross was a kind of a hybrid interpretation of what Yahweh meant by scholars in the Middle Ages, but the name Jehovah doesn't exist. And the reason why I say that is because if you get a Jehovah's Witness called to your house, you can just say, look, you know, from the Hebrew, I can tell you there's no such thing as Jehovah in the Bible. But we're going to meet Yahweh tonight in Exodus chapter 3. And we know, of course, the background to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, and that background is Pharaoh's persecution of uh, the Hebrew people. And we recall at the end of Genesis that what happens is Joseph and his family uh, go down to Egypt 
take all their, their, their wives and their kids with them. And over the generations, they make quite a success for themselves. And this provokes an intense kind of jealousy from Pharaoh who decides to slaughter all the Jewish baby boys in an act of gross ethnic cleansing. But we know that Moses is saved and he's saved providentially from this slaughter. Uh, we saved as uh, Pharaoh's daughter spots him in the bulrushes and has pity on this little Hebrew baby, as the text says. And she decides to take this baby home, this baby Moses, and uh, unwittingly allows Moses' own mother to be a maid to Moses as he grows up in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. And yet we also know his mother, his Hebrew mother, must have had, his natural mother must have had a real influence uh, on Moses as he grew up because he was intensely aware of his ethnic status. He was so aware, in fact, of his ethnic status that in chapter 2, verse 11, you'll see that he engages in a murderous fight with an Egyptian uh, when he's provoked into the defense of his, Hebrews brother, of his Hebrew brothers. And it's because he feared the consequences of Pharaoh's judgment that Moses the murderer, or Mo the murderer, I've abbreviated my notes here, he starts to leg it. And he goes to the land of Midian, uh, miles away from Egypt, and he falls in love with Zipporah. And he has this son called Gershom, and he really wants to get down to a very, very quiet life on the family farm, looking after a few sheep on the hill. So that's the personal profile of at least the human subject of our study tonight. And people look at Moses often in the Bible, and Christ refers to Moses, and uh, Paul refers to Moses, and uh, we always think he's a, he's a great hero of faith. But the actual profile of the guy is perhaps a little different. He's, he's rough, he's tough, he's a farmer. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with farmers, but <laughs> he's a rough, tough farmer capable of causing trouble. And of course, most of us are also familiar with what happens next in the story of Moses as Elizabeth read to us, the burning bush narrative where the Lord appears in the eternal flame uh, out of the burning bush that we have up there, uh, the eternal flame, and he commissions Moses uh, from this to go back down to Egypt and to rescue the people of Israel because they had uh, groaned uh, to God because of their oppression, and he heard their cry and wanted to rescue them from their affliction. But in verse 11 of chapter 3, we read, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites up out of Egypt? You see, Moses gets the jitters and he has this overwhelming sense of inadequacy, this fear about the task that the Lord has called him to, and perhaps a sense of guilt, a few skeletons in the, cl in, in, in the closet. It's almost as if he's saying to God, you know, I, I, I'm really not the man. You, you should be looking at someone else because, frankly, I'm, I'm a bit scared of this whole going down to Egypt thing. You know, I, I don't really want to go to Egypt. You can see that's what he's thinking. But God says, verse 12, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Verse 13, Moses said to God, 
suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? And what shall I tell them? Now, these verses, 13 through to 16, have been described as the most difficult parts of the Old Testament to decipher. Uh, one commentator described them as inscrutable. And it really centers around one main question. If Moses already knew the identity of God in verse 6, where he describes him as Elohim, why did he have to ask God what his name was again? I mean, he was told very, very clearly who God was. God says in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I mean, he knew. There was no mistake. He was being addressed by the Hebrew God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew. So, so why did Moses ask him again? Well, it's a bit like this. I don't know if you've ever thought about your name. I don't know if you've ever thought about what your name means. When I was a young lad growing up in Arbrady, um, which is uh, up in County Tyrone, there used to be a boy down the road called uh, Robert Taylor, and Robert Taylor and I used to go skateboarding down uh, our hill. He went skateboarding. I, I didn't want to go skateboarding down the hill. But he used to call me Smarty Marty. I don't know why, because it was neither you know, smart or had any you know, modicum of intelligence about me, but that's what he used to call me. And then when I went to school in England, they used to call me Paddy, because, of course, I'm from Ireland. And the name McNeely, my surname, it's actually an Irish Gaelic name, which means son of the poet. And we see that with people's names, don't we? We see, in, in, you know, I'm a rugby fanatic. There's an England prop forward called Trevor Woodman, obviously in Generations ago, his father was, or his forefathers were woodmen. They worked with wood. Or we see people called silversmith. Or, of course, we hear of people called Thatcher. And the great lady's forefathers, years and years and years ago, probably were Thatchers, crofting on uh, cottages and so on and so forth. See, names mean something. They're significant. And it's exactly the same with God. So when Moses asks the question, what is your name? He's really asking the question, who are you? Who are you? What can I say about your character? What can I say about you that makes you different from all of the other you know, cults and gods and idols that you know, seem to be represented by stone and by wood and the kind of guys that they worship down there in Egypt? Why are you so different? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And then he also says in verse 15, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, if you want to look at the technic technical issues uh, Regarding verse 14, the Hebrew reads, Eye, Asher, Eye, which is literally uh, a translation or a version uh, of the verb to be. And in the Hebrew language, there are only two tenses, perfect and imperfect. The perfect tense is for final completed action. You know, I did walk or I walked. 
Whereas the imperfect tense is for everything else. It means present tense, and it could also mean future tense. So this could also be translated, I will be who I will be. And it's linked, this word, Iye, Asher, Iye, this term, it's linked in verse 15 to Yahweh. And any time you see the word Lord in capitals throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, it's a reference to Yahweh. The two words are very, very similar. The word Yahweh, which is the name of God as he reveals it to Exodus, uh, in Exodus to Moses, and the verb to be Iye, Asher, Iye. So Yahweh, in fact, appears in Exodus chapter 3, but just to give you a bit of context. He also appears in Genesis. He appears uh, in, in uh, Jacob's dream, the, the dream of the ladder. Uh, the ladder goes up to Yahweh, as it describes in the text in Genesis. But this is the first time God actually reveals himself to uh, a person. Now, of course, critical people, people who would like to, you know, strip the Bible apart and cut it up into different sections and look at it in a very analytical way, we'd say, well, you know, Yahweh really has a different explanation. It's a natural explanation. It means he reigns, God reigns, or God blows like the wind. Or some people think it's linked to a kind of a cult that used to uh, worship the sun because the Hebrew word for sun, or one of the words, was very similar to the word Yahweh. And then, of course, from the critical, we go to the very, very religious, people like Thomas Aquinas, and uh, people like Karl Barth. Karl Barth is a great writer. He used to say, well, actually, what God is saying here is, don't ask my name. I am who I am. Just you keep your distance, Moses. I'm far too holy for you to be asking me who my name is. You should know my character. Look at what I've done in the past for you guys. You've forgotten. But of course, the context is one of dialogue here. That's what we're reading. We're reading dialogue. God is talking to Moses, and he really wants to reveal himself to him, and he really wants to reveal himself to future generations. He doesn't just want Moses to understand who he is. He wants future generations. He says in verse 15, this is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation, forever and ever and ever. And again, a technical point from the Hebrew when in Hebrew they want to emphasize something, uh, they would use what we call the comparative. So if a hole is, is deep, they wouldn't say it's a very deep hole. They would just go, they would just say hole, hole, hole. Or if something was uh, very pure gold, they would say gold, gold, gold. In Isaiah, it talks about the holiness of God. The word for holiness or holy is kadosh. And in Isaiah, it just says kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Holy, holy, holy. And that's what's going on here, literally in the Hebrew text. It literally says, I am who I am, who I am, who I am. I will always be God. I am God. And I will continue to always be God in the future. And so Moses, God says, when you go back to Egypt, you've got to say to the people, that I have always been the God of Israel with a covenant plan for you. And I am the God of Israel with a covenant plan for you. And I will continue to be, from generation onto generation, the covenant God of Israel with a plan for you, a covenant plan for you. A plan which would lead to the blessing of all nations, just like I said to Abraham. And this is the context, Moses, within which God has to be understood and worshipped. 
That's what he says. But what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us tonight? Well, I think there are three significant things in this passage which speak to us from uh, the Word of God, from the name of Yahweh. And the first is grace. Speaks to us of grace, this revelation of the name of God. I mean, we think about Moses, we think about a man who was a political murderer, a rough farmer, someone who was full of doubt. And God says, well, you know, Moses, I'm going to use you. I'm just going to pick you up and I'm going to use you. And it's amazing, isn't it, in the Christian life, the amount of people that we come across here, just like Moses, they think, don't use me, God. I'm not good enough. I really haven't got the guts. I know people, in a simple illustration, I know people who um, have said in the past, they've got some sort of you know, musical gift, but they've said, no, I, I couldn't possibly stand and sing. I, I couldn't possibly do that. In our own church in Bloomfield, there's somebody who once said that, and now they lead worship all of the time. There are people I know in a congregation, two lovely, faith, faithful, godly women, who say, oh, you know, we're not good enough to take communion. We don't take communion. What a ridiculous. Never say, say that to their face. But I mean, where do people get the sense that they have to come up to standard for God to work? God's a God of grace. It doesn't depend on, you know, he's not, he's not looking for people who think they've got it sus. He doesn't depend on our own self-righteousness or our own ability because he does the work. And that's what he's trying to communicate to Moses, and he's trying to communicate to us that he chooses, he works the plan, and he does it in his strength and in his time because he is a God of grace. It's his initiative. I think there's a second thing which speaks to us from the revelation of the name of God tonight, and that is the fact that the revelation of the name of God is something which speaks of purpose. Because we know that what God is in the business of doing here with Moses is he's in the business of moving the Hebrews away from Egypt into the promised land. And he's going to free them, just as he says he will, from the enslavement and the oppression that they suffered. And he's going to move them into a land, importantly, where they would be free to worship him. Yahweh had a purpose. And I guess it's the same here tonight, and I'm addressing you corporately as a church, and you know with your new minister that you're corporately as a body of Christ people together here in Kirkpatrick, thinking about how you can move forward. And God speaks to us from the revelation of his name that he very, very clearly has a purpose for us as a body of people together. But he also has a purpose for us as individuals. And maybe there are people here who are considering moving on, maybe moving jobs, moving on in friendships, or moving house, or looking at a new sphere of service for God. And we need to remember that we move by His grace, but for His purpose always. So Yahweh speaks to us of grace, and Yahweh speaks to us of purpose. But Yahweh also speaks to us of power. And we know that the power of Yahweh was manifest when he encounters Pharaoh 
through Moses. And Moses again is weak. But God says, no, I'm going to take care of it. And he sends and chastens, hassles Pharaoh with the, the plagues. And we know that the power of God was manifest by his presence in the cloud and the fiery pillar, always with his people, day and night. And we know that the power of Yahweh was manifest in his word as he instructs the Ten Commandments for Moses to issue to the people of Israel. And I guess it's good for us to remind ourselves of the power of Yahweh in our lives too. The New Testament has uh, only uh, a few names uh, for God. Uh, Theos, which simply means God, and Patros, which means Father. And we looked at that this morning, didn't we, about the fatherhood of God, the prodigal son. But his name, just as it was powerful in the Old Testament, is powerful in the New Testament too. We think of the power of the name of the Father in baptism, for example, in Matthew 28, where we baptize people who come to faith and we baptize infants in our tradition, where Yahweh opens up the family membership. We're allowed to call him Father. And we, as Presbyterians, we incorporate all our children uh, in this gracious promise of God that he will bless all nations and he will choose by grace his people to bless all nations. And this is a very high view of infant baptism that we have. Just laboring on this for a while because, you know, people seem to think that they just come to church and they splash their children or they christen them or they, it's some kind of naming ceremony like the queen smashing a bottle on the side of the QE2. It's not like that at all. It's about introducing children and adult believers as they come to faith into the divine plan. And we point them to the fact that by the grace of Yahweh and for his purpose, he covenants, he promises to come into our lives and change us, and he does it in power. And when we as a congregation stand together and pray for infants as they're baptized, we have to realize very, very clearly that when we pray in the name of the Father, that's a very powerful thing, a very powerful thing. And as we continue to pray for our children, I see we have a wonderful collection of kids here this morning, we must continue to pray for them that the covenant promise of God will be realized in their lives as they come to faith. And it's so true, isn't it, that the name of the Father, the name of Yahweh is powerful. It's a stamp on people's lives. And it's, a, it's a powerful name as people convert to God. It's in no other name that people can come to know Christ. In uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter actually quotes the name of Yahweh all who call on the name of Yahweh will be saved. That's what it literally says. And that's something that we have to share with people, especially in Northern Ireland, I believe, where the political life of Northern Ireland reflects the fact that so many people, especially in our community, have been given promises of security and hope, you know, pinned around identity or land. Of what we have, we hold. Salvation is not found in that. It's only found in the name of Yahweh, the name of God. And the same, of course, could be said about people who pin their hopes on their own ability or on material possessions to guarantee them happiness or eternal hope. It's not like that. Only in the name of God can we know salvation. 
And of course, we know that the name of Yahweh has power in final judgment. The name of Yahweh has power in baptism and in conversion and also in final judgment. Paul writes of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. It's at the name of Jesus one day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Everybody will have to confess when God winds up the cosmic clock that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is the whole direction that the Bible is moving, not just from Exodus chapter 3, but way back from, you know, Genesis chapter 3, when the first covenant was established between God and Adam and Eve, when he says, you know, it's from your seed. It's from your seed that a Savior will come. You know, in the world today, we are so used, I think, to being in a dysfunctional relationship with each other, with our family or with our friends, or people just don't seem to be telling the truth anymore. I got a phone call this afternoon, one of those daft phone calls. Everyone gets them from uh, marketing companies based in India or somewhere else, and they phone up and they say, um, you know, hi, you've won a holiday in San Diego or You've all had those. You've had those, haven't you? They seem to be blighting everybody. It really annoys me because I think, you know, people actually sit down and plan these lies. They phone me up and they say, I've got something that I haven't. But that seems to characterize our society today, where we're so distrustful of people, even people we know. We're so distrustful of what it says in the newspapers. We can be rightly distrustful of some of our politicians. I was going to name one there, but I, I didn't name the prime minister. But we can be so distrustful of people in society but we can depend on Yahweh because his very name is indicative of his trustworthy nature as our covenant God who never fails us and never lets us down because of his grace, because of his purpose, his plan, and the great power of his name. We thank him for it. Let's pray together. Well, Father, so often we feel like Moses. We feel as if we're incapable of doing anything for you. But you pick us up. You clothe us with the righteous garments of Christ. And you enable us to step forward in faith and to serve you as part of your divine economy and plan. So reassuring to know, isn't it, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose sketched out for each and every person here tonight, for each and every believer, so that all day the gospel will be preached in all nations. One day all people will have to acknowledge that you are Lord. We pray this evening, Lord God, that you would uh, be near to us, any of us in need, perhaps people suffering from an illness or from a doubt or nerves. We pray that you be with our families and those that we love, our friends and the communities that we come from. And help us this week to know the reassuring presence 
of Yahweh, the covenant God, who never lets us down. Amen.